and we looked at a good part of John 7 already. Uh, the next event, and this is just after the Feast of the Tabernacles, takes place from John chapter 7, verse 53, through John 8, verse 11. So that'll be our text as we look at the story of an adulteress brought to Jesus. This is going to be a little bit of a review, uh, which is the danger of doing a study for years of the Lord's ministry chronologically. At some point I have taught on any New Testament event, uh, it's going to come up again as we go through these mini his ministry. So uh, bear with me. I, I did try to fine-tune the outline to some things I didn't spend as much time on the last time we saw this event. Uh, but in the sequence of things, again chronologically, this is next. So John chapter 7, verse 53, we read, And every man went into his house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, <clears throat> he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. I remind you that word convicted is the same word translated evidence uh, in Hebrews 11.1. 1. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, there are, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Heavenly Father, as we consider this text, Father, I ask that you bring to mind those things, those events that we have studied that led up to this one. Help us, Lord, to, in the context of this, remember that it does immediately follow the feast uh, that we've been studying for quite some time now, Lord. We just pray again that you would give us context, you give us application. Help us, Father. Help our hearts. Uh, cause us to be undone if necessary. Bring us to a point of repentance, Lord, that we would seek to put thee first in our hearts and in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The scribes and Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus in the court of the women in the treasury section of the temple. And you can see this down in uh, John 8, verse 20, later in that same chapter. This was likely taking place, as I said, right after the Feast of Tabernacles. So uh, geographically speaking, you have an idea of where the Lord is at this point and what has preceded it based on what we've been studying. Their motive, as always, was to test him, to tempt him, to try and find a, a means in which they could accuse him, that they could bring him before trial and put an end to his teachings. And it forced, uh, at best, forced him into a dilemma in which he tries to contradict himself. This is the same test the world will perform on any professing Christian. Try to find a way to get us to contradict ourselves so that uh, if humiliation isn't reached, at best our credit, our authority is called to question. If he set the woman free, then he would be guilty of violating Moses' law, which we see in Leviticus 20, verse 10. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, 
shall surely be put to death. That is the whole law. Uh, clearly, we see only half the law is, is in play here. We see it again in Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. So we get the purpose there as well. If he had stoned her, he could not claim to be the one who forgives sin. You see the dilemma that they're trying to set up here. Arthur Pink even suggests that Christ wrote on the ground with his finger twice to remind them of the two tablets of the law written with the finger of God. We see that in Exodus 31:18, And he gave unto Moses, God gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. In Exodus 32, verses 15 through 18, we read, And Moses turned, went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, <clears throat> It's not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. A few chapters later, Exodus 34, 1, the Lord said unto Moses, Hew these two tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. So I'm skipping along pretty quickly here because this outline is not necessarily about those first stone tablets or tables, but we understand that in the frustration of what they were doing while Moses was at the top of the mount communing with God and Joshua was at watch halfway up the mountain, which we should point out he wasn't supposed to be there alone. There were 70 with him when Moses was dispatched to the top of the mountain. This occurrence at the bottom of the mountain that I'm not giving you the text for was when Aaron said, you know, the golden calf just came out of that oven. And Moses, in his frustration, threw the stone tablets down, and they, they broke, and they were cracked. And this is what Arthur Pink is making reference to, saying that's why the Lord uh, drew twice or wrote twice in the sand. Uh, Steve and I have had conversations about this many times. There's a lot of different theories as to what people think he may have been writing or why he may have been writing. And I think this one's probably pretty interesting, uh, but we don't know for sure. Was there a cost to God having to write that law twice? I think that's a question we have to answer if indeed that's the reason for this reference here. Was there a cost to God having to write his law twice? The Jews sinned. Moses broke the first stone tablets for, on the ground, but God forgave their sin, provided blood sacrifices, and gave them another set of tablets. Christ died for the sins of this woman, and he was able to forgive here. And I think the reason that it is significant that if, if this is even part of why he's writing in the sand here, is that the whole end part of this is a bringing about of conviction, a bringing about of evidence for those accusers, and a display of forgiveness from Christ Jesus for this uh, adulterous woman. So we see here that the same thing occurred in pointing back to the grace of God, the rejoicing that could be found in the grace of God, in him being a deliverer. Jesus set this woman free. She wasn't held for a day, wasn't held for two, wasn't held for bond until her bail was paid. She was set free. 
Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. John 3, 17 through 21, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they were wrought in God." <clears throat> might be a silly notion for those who know God and uh, his sovereignty to assume that as long as man can hide from light, his deeds, his evil deeds, will never be brought into it, never be revealed, and never have to be addressed. But, sinner, those sins will be addressed for all eternity if not revealed into that light. If not redeemed by Christ Jesus, payment will come. Condemnation is not what the Lord Jesus had for this woman. I mean, really, we see kind of a salvation experience for this woman. She is brought in by her sin, brought in by her accusers. Who's her accusers? That enemy we just talked about before lunch that ever standeth, ever slinging accusations. And he's making that presentation to God the Father himself. Here we see this woman being accused having accusations made about how she was found and what she was found doing. Does God call down fire and consume her? He reveals that there's nothing, there are, there are no innocent here who can pass judgment on her. There are none there free of evidence, free of conviction, that they are pure enough to cast such judgment. He had conviction for her accusers. What an interesting turn that I'm sure they weren't expecting. For those persecutors of Christ, it was never about them. And their mindset, and Saul of Tarsus's mindset, it was never about Saul of Tarsus. It was always about pl the plague of the way and extinguishing men, women, and children who were following after this teaching of Christ Jesus and putting it out, putting it into it. It was never about Saul of Tarsus for Saul of Tarsus. But for Jesus... When he came to Damascus Road, it was all about Saul of Tarsus. And that's what happens here. These accusers, it's not about them. How often do we find out? If you're an older sibling in here, I assure you, you've been in that spot. It's not about me. It's about John. John did wrong. John should be addressed. John should be punished. John should be dealt with. And you know, every single time, Mom and Dad found a reason for it to be about Joe... How's that even happen? Isaac, you've been there. Any other older sibling in the room, you've been there. Jesus turns it about and points to everyone in the room in a sense. says, I'm the only one who can pass judgment. So if you're here and you can pass judgment too, go ahead and cast the first stone. You who are pure of heart, strong in faith, mighty enough to deliver thyself, go ahead and deliver yourself. But you can't do it. You can't do it. Let's consider again our text. Where was it that these scribes and Pharisees again found this woman? We see in verses 3 and 4 of John 8, the scribes and Pharisees brought this woman, uh, brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. 
And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And we asked the last time we studied this, whose snare is this? I, I want to be a little bit more vivid. This woman's caught in the act, and I don't know, I couldn't find a commentator who spoke to this, and maybe it's because it's just too, too lewd, but I don't know that they said, go get dressed, we want to take you to Christ Jesus. She's caught in the act, she may at best be just covered with some kind of garment, loosely, but she's indecent. I mean, we can agree on that. If she's not completely nude as she's tossed in there, she's indecent. These scribes and Pharisees were not above trying to arouse some kind of response by the crowd from throwing a naked woman in there and saying, she's caught in the act. I mean, really think it through. And no decent woman would be caught without those garments. No decent woman would be caught naked. This is even further proof to their point. She should die. She's broken the law. And this will, in their minds, excite some kind of response from Jesus. He'll have to handle this right away. He'll have to deal with it. It'll get the attention of the crowds who are leaving that feast immediately. Who's going to look away from this? Maybe even in their minds, it might compare to the woman who had the issue of blood, who came through the throng, touched the hem of his garment, and was healed. Maybe this will rival that, maybe the devil thinks. Whose snare was this? The Lord gave commandment to how to handle an adulteress and the man that she's being an adulteress with. They had already forsaken the law when they let him go. For all we know, they may have been one of them. One of them may have been the man that was involved in this. What the Lord reveals in his short statement here, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her, is a confirmation that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. There was not a one of them that could cast a stone. And if there's an audience involved here, there's not one there either that casts a stone. Remember, beloved, your once fallen estate for all who are born again were justly or, or were justified freely, rather, by His grace. Justified freely. When I think about being justified freely, I think of this event. This woman literally has nothing to offer. And if we think of this situation and, and perhaps her being naked, she's literally revealed completely to Christ. She has nothing to hide behind. She has nothing for which to say, but I'm good, but I'm redeemable. She is completely exposed to the masses, caught in the act, they say, so the, her accusers are confident of her guilt, and none could argue it. And then I think of this phrase, justified freely by his grace. And even though th she is completely exposed and completely guilty, none are allowed to lay a finger on her. There's a type here of the perseverance that the Lord's promised for his church. Because the, the Lord's church, and there are going to people, be people who hate this type, comparing the church to an adulterous woman, but hear me out. The Lord's church, if she's doing what she was commissioned to do, is fully exposed, completely naked to the world, and she's not hiding the fact that she's Christian, that she's following, pursuing Christ Jesus, and that she's standing on the principles of God. Hers will be the first door knocked in by the authorities for 
uh, doing baptism other than state-approved baptism. We've seen this in history books. Hers will be the first door blown off the hinges for preaching against homosexuality because the Bible says that it's wrong. She's completely exposed to the world. She can't hide anything that she's doing because she wasn't put here to hide. She was put here to go unto all nations. So I stand behind it. Being justified freely by his grace, the Lord's church should be, like this adulterous woman, guilty of all charges and completely exposed to the world that stands to accuse her. We were not justified by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Titus 3, 5. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through, the, through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, we looked at this last summer, but for the sake of this ongoing study, I'd like to revisit a few details here. It's significant that in this case, we see Jesus stoop down because we're not equal to his stature. He stoops down in this, story, in, in this event, in these short verses that we're covering here, stoops down twice. Then we read that Jesus lifted up himself, which is again symbolic to what he told Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. That he had said in verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It must happen that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Are we lifting up the Lord Jesus so that others might be healed? Or do we bring sinners to Christ in the same fashion as the scribes and the Pharisees do in this text? Look at this wicked one, Master. She should be stoned. She should be killed according to the law. Look at this person, Master. Surely you can't save them. Think of how Jonah handles the situation with where he was called to go. How do we bring sinners to Christ? In our own humility, lifting him up? Or in our own puffed-up self-righteousness, trying to point adjacent at best, but most likely trying to point down to the Lord Jesus. None will be saved like that. Perhaps we don't like questions like this, for it asks, are we faithful? But that's what I've been asking since we started this discernment series. Really, since we've started asking questions in general last fall. Are we faithful? What is conviction? If we're saved, then our old nature cannot prohibit our fulfilling the commandments of our Heavenly Father. Our old nature will hate it, will abhor it. In fact, our new nature makes serving Him to the fullest possible where it wasn't possible at all before. Listen to Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, for sin shall ha not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. That's what's typified in this text. The law had a place. Who could look at this text and say, well, the law has no purpose if he's just going to forgive her sins. What brought her there? And no, the answer is not deceitful Pharisees and scribes trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus by using the law. The law is what brought her before Jesus. Isn't that the role the law has as our schoolmaster? To bring us before the throne of God? 
it did serve its purpose. It did exactly what it was designed to do. Well, she was indecent. All are indecent before salvation. All are indecent standing before God. None are worthy. She was caught in the middle of the act. Before you're born again, there's not a moment you won't be caught in the middle of sin. Because all you ever did was please your own appetite. You had no other appetite to please. Returning again to our text, you'll note that in John 8, verse 7, we read, So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And we see here godly evidence or godly convic conviction is brought on by absolute truth, not mere accusations. When the accusers heard his words upon being exalted or lifted up again, as we see in the physical sense, he is, they scattered. There's nothing else they could have done. They scattered. Verses 10 through 11 of our text, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, he's exalted again, and we are about to see forgiveness. Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Again, upon being lifted up, Jesus reveals to the woman that in her sin debt, that her sin debt itself, the actual debt of her sin, it was removed. Sure, the mockers would come again. Sure, there would be further attempts of the devil who never rests to condemn her. But she's been com commissioned to do what? To go. Go and sin no more. And now, abstaining from all appearances of evil, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, she was now called to freedom. And she wasn't called to go into hiding. You've already been exposed, he might say. You have already been healed. They already know you were a sinner. When you leave this place after they've already left and you haven't been stoned, they're already going to know I forgave you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin. I mean, her testimony is written. Go and sin no more. But she's guilty. Yes, she was. And she was set free by her judge set free by God oh the love of Christ these final words to her echo what we read in Matthew 10 16 behold I send you forth the sheep in the midst of wolves be ye therefore wise as serpents harmless as doves it's as though he said unto her cause no more harm your convictions even your accusers were as the hounds of God himself that brought you to me the law, the accusers, her sin, all of these things coming together and bringing her right to the foot of Jesus Christ. Hear me, sinner. It's hard, even in the most honest of our churches, to keep shame from falling on those who are lost. It's as though we add another weight to your neck and we say, repent. Repent. And for those who have never repented, for those who don't have salvation, for those who don't know Christ Jesus, that seems to be a most impossible task. And we don't attempt to add another noose of shame around your neck by calling you a sinner. There's enough shame in being a sinner. 
but you are how you were born to be. There's actually a sense of revelation in those who claim to be homosexuals. We can't say they're deceiving themselves if they're lost. This is no worse sin than any other sin, really. They're confessing it openly where we would think they should be ashamed, but they need Jesus. They need grace. They need salvation. They don't need another weight. They need someone to point out that those who are heavy laden, those who are overweighted and bared down by their own flesh, there is a great rest. There is a great deliverer. Listen to Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. He writes here, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown, drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. We see a parallel between Psalms 8 and Romans 8 here, pointing to Jesus as that great love. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Rejoice! Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. This woman, who knew such shame, who knew such accusation, who knew such despicable men to possibly trap her and drag her before the Lord Jesus, I'm sure never forgot the day that she stood there before him and was forgiven. What was meant for her harm, God made to her well-being. He made it good for her. We see similarities with Joseph and the harm that his brothers meant for him and how it was the Lord's will coming, coming together, how God was revealing himself through those circumstances to Joseph. Maybe you are here and lost. Maybe you feel trapped in the life that you've had. Maybe you feel there's nothing that you can do. There's nowhere you can go. And you're right. And maybe that's the most devastating news you've ever had confirmed for you. But you're right. There's nowhere you can go. There's nothing you can do. You cannot deliver yourself. This woman was as good as dead. I mean, if you really want to think along the lines of Schrodinger's cat and put Jesus in a box as this instruction's happening, if you were outside the room that they were in and they drag her in there, barely covered or fully naked, and close the door behind them, she's both dead and alive to you until you know what happens. And when she comes out alive, I bet you didn't forget that. 
I bet she didn't forget all her accusers marched out of that room with their heads held low, no blood on their hands, and this woman coming out beaming. I've been forgiven. He told me, go and sin no more. I don't think we should read this text and think that he deceived her and that she had never sinned. He doesn't say that. He says, go and sin no more. She had sinned. I say the same to you who are here and lost. Trust in Jesus and go and sin no more. Repent of this history. Repent of this past. Come away from such things if you've been empowered to do so and go and sin no more. And if ye thirst, come and drink. And if you're heavy laden, come to him and he will give you rest. But you're right. There is nowhere else you can go. There is nothing else that you can do. It's Jesus or nothing. In regard to what the scribes and Pharisees were hoping to catch Jesus in, we must note in closing that in his answer, he upheld the law of Moses. In his answer, he stipulated that execution should be by innocent hands. In his answer, he awakened the conscience of her accusers. In his answer, when no one appeared who was qualified to cast the first stone, he pronounced her to be free of their charges. He never broke the law of Moses even a little bit. Is he just clever at wordplay? Or is he the great I am who has ever been present, who was in the confession of those laws and been involved in Moses' history ever since the beginning? He is not just some great teacher. And he is not just some influential speaker. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is salvation. Let us remember the cross. Jesus was found only to be guilty of the sins of the elect in God the Father's eyes. He bore that cross, bore that conviction, bore that blame for us. He was innocent. Always has been, always will be. None of that sin was his. So while there's nothing else you can do, and there's nowhere else you can go, one who didn't need to go anywhere, and one who didn't need to do anything, he came and paid that price. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. There's a rejoicing there. That is your great hope. If you're here and lost, there's nothing else I can point you to. Trust in him today. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be saved. Be faithful.